0: with Dr. Farid
1: Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fader Olakun. I'll be with you for the next 2 hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, studio number 3104410555. So I wanted to start off the show today talking about some things that we see as dark and negative, but that actually are not so but it's just the way we think about them that makes us think of it that way and I'll, I'll explain what i mean so two psychological concepts one is the unconscious and the other is our shadow and so shadow of course implies dark because it's in the shadow and so because of that we think of it as negative and unconscious tends to have this connotation for most people because we say you know oh that's in your unconscious or you have unconscious desires or feelings and because of how the unconscious came to be conceptualized, it tends to be associated with something negative or dark. And that is not at all the case for both the unconscious and when we consider the shadow. So I'll give some types of definitions or descriptions of them so we can know what we're talking about and then get into what I mean by the fact that they're actually not dark or negative, even though they tend to have that connotation or association for many people so the unconscious has this dark um, image we can say or dark way of being seen when we consider when it came about and Freud uh, along with others Joseph Brewer if you recall in the book why Nietzsche rept we we learned that I learned about Joseph Brewer's contribution to the unconscious as well but we see that it had this um, understanding that it was these things that were causing people distress so for example hysterical symptoms or if they were having a conversion disorder so let's say someone doesn't have any physical issue but is not able to do something because of a psychological impediment in their unconscious and because of the victorian era where these ideas were coming about the mindset that these things could not be talked about sex and other things that were taboo it came to be seen and conceptualized that the unconscious had these negative dark parts of ourself and that's not good. So anything unconscious is bad or dark. And that's not true at all. And so the shadow, this is uh, more of a Jungian concept, but others discuss it as well. And that's essentially the, where at some point in our life, usually in our childhood, we learn to put away some aspects of ourself. Because either they are being responded to poorly or we're seeing it modeled in other people and we see it really bad and so we think we should get rid of that part of ourselves but for various reasons all of us are putting some parts of ourselves away and so as a human being or a full human being we want to have access to all the different parts of being human but what we see is that for practically all of us there are some parts we've put in the shadow So for example, if you got sad as a child and your parents responded in a way that made you feel really bad about that, that you shouldn't be sad, that it makes them sad, that they don't love you when you're sad, you don't get attention when you're sad. For a variety of reasons, you might have learned to put this aspect of yourself away, that I'm never going to be sad. And it could be so dissociated from yourself that you are not even aware of it. So there actually is a connection between the unconscious and the shadow that you might not even realize you're sad. So if you've put those feelings in your shadow and you ask someone if they're feeling sad, they'll say, no, I'm good, I'm happy. But it's actually not because there isn't any sadness there, but that they are disconnected to it uh, or from it and they are unaware of it. So again, that's where the unconscious and actually the shadow can be connected in that way. But in neither case does it mean what's in those places, in the unconscious or in the shadow, or actually negative or dark things. They are just things that we are either unaware of in the unconscious or aspects of ourself that we're not in touch with. So your shadow is not dark things or negative things. Your shadow is just parts that are in the dark to you or that you have put in the dark because you were told they were not safe or not okay to express. And so the unconscious is also not parts of you that are bad, it's just that as A human being, or if we look at the human brain, there's no way you can be conscious of everything that you can have in your brain. It's just not possible for you to attend to everything all the time. We are aware of so much more right now. As you're listening to me, you're hopefully focusing on what I'm saying. But there are so many things that, if I mention, or if you think about, or if something brings to your mind, you'll become aware of so many more facts or things about that. So right now, I can then say think about your mother and then a whole bunch of things will come up related to your mother but 10 seconds ago before I mentioned that those things wouldn't have been on your mind doesn't mean they were in your conscious because they were dark it's just this awareness that unconscious really means not conscious things that you're not aware of in that moment which just includes all the things that your brain is holding on to all the different things it can access or uh, bring up but it can't bring up everything at once. So actually the unconscious is a wonderful thing. It's a great thing that we have that. If we couldn't have that, we would be only able to do so little because we would only have what we're conscious of and we'd have to respond in that way. So the unconscious is actually a very good thing. And an analogy that came to my mind to reframe or give a different image of how we can think of the unconscious is like our brain is a library. And so, yes, memory is a reconstructive process. And I don't want to feed that myth that our memory is something that you can read back like a book or like a video. But however, we know that there's a lot that we store in our brain. And so our brain is like a library. And you might check out just one book at a time. So that's what you make conscious is I've checked that one book and I'm reading it. But it doesn't mean all the other books in the library that I'm not thinking of right now are negative or dark, that it's a bad place. It just means that I can't be conscious of it all, all the time. I can only be conscious of a very, very small sliver of what I possibly could know, similar to how I'm just checking out one book and reading it, and I can read that book. But I'm not aware of all the other things that are there, but I can be if I then go access them or if somehow they're brought up. So I think that library image could make it seem that it's not a dark thing it's actually there's so many great places there and so many good things that we have and of course yes we have pains and traumas and things that are there that can be uh, hurtful or dark or have certain feelings but that is just how we can have parts of our physical body that might have pains or things that are there doesn't mean the whole thing is bad it just means that there are some aspects of it that might have some pain or darkness that is there but overall it's a very good thing And so the shadow, similarly, when we hear shadow, it sounds like something scary, something bad, or that it's been put in the shadow or it's in the dark because it's bad. But that's actually what we have to reframe for ourselves is that that's how we feel is that we've put these parts away because they are bad. But if we want to become psychologically more healthy, we want to be able to embrace those parts of ourselves to become a more full human being for ourselves and in our relationships and how we interact with the world. So that analogy I use of someone who is um, putting their sadness away, it might seem like, well, why why would it be sad uh, or bad to put sadness away? Well, it's not that sadness feels good, but sadness does have value in that it gives us information. And so if we cut off any feeling or any aspect of ourselves, we're cutting off something that can have value. So if you're not aware of your sadness or not in touch with it, then when something happens and it makes you sad, you won't be as in touch with it. And you also won't feel okay expressing it. So towards yourself, you'll be missing information that something is bothering you or upsetting you. And towards other people, you won't be able to express that. So let's say a friend, loved one made you sad. If you're not aware of your sadness, it actually takes away from what you can share and experience with that person. And it's so similar to if we are numb to some part of our body, that's not good. You might think, well, it's good, you don't feel pain there. That's true, but you also can't get information about pain or even pleasure or what else is going on to know what's going on. And so if we numb some part of our psyche, it's gonna hurt us, it doesn't help us. Even if moment to moment or in a particular moment, we might prefer not to feel a certain way it hurts us when we are not in touch with those parts of ourselves, Or let's say being assertive is something that you've put away, that you shouldn't ask for things, you shouldn't upset anyone, avoid conflict, all those things. And you've learned that this is the right way to be from your interactions with your family, and then it might get reinforced by other people. And you might find people that further reinforce that, that want you to avoid conflict, let's say, and so it feels like nothing's wrong. But you will come to realize you will tend to resent people you have relationships with because your needs are getting sacrificed or are not being met not necessarily because they won't let you express them but you yourself have put that in the shadow so it's not that those uh, needs are bad or doesn't mean that being assertive is bad it's actually quite good and healthy but you've put it in the dark because you think or you've been told and learned that it's not healthy or good for you to Uh, be that way, to think that way, or to express yourself in that way. So we can see that both the unconscious and also our shadow or the parts of ourself we've put in the shadow, they're not dark, bad things. They are things that in the, the case of the unconscious have to be in the dark at any given time. We can only be conscious and aware of a small sliver. You'd be overwhelmed if every thought, memory, feeling you've ever had was in your awareness all the time. You wouldn't be able to focus on one thing to then take care of whatever you need to take care of in that moment. So we need the unconscious or for things to not be conscious. And they're not just dark desires that are being unexpressed. And then when we get to see them, we see how bad we really are. No, it's just, we are human beings with multifaceted thoughts, feelings, beliefs, all sorts of things. And yes, some of them might feel dark or be that way, but it doesn't mean the unconscious or whatever is unconscious is dark. And similarly, our shadow, It's not in the shadow because these are bad parts of ourself. It's that unfortunately we learned that they were bad and we put them away, but they're actually parts of ourself that if we want to become healthier, need to integrate, to recognize that the healthiest person is one that has the flexibility to experience different feelings and all the variety of human feelings, and also to then express the human repertoire of behaviors and interactions in return. So it's not good to put parts of ourselves away and they're not in the dark because they're bad, but because we learned they were. So uh, at times I've mentioned about rebranding the unconscious and I think the shadow has the same feeling for me, the sense that it sounds dark, but it's actually, we've put it in the dark, we're bringing it to light will actually improve ourselves and our lives. Okay, let's go to a commercial break, studio number 310 4410555 555 we'll be right back. Welcome back, studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. Let's go to a call. Radio Hamro, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Thanks for calling.
2: Uh, I have a question regarding to my daughter. Uh, she is going to uh, change her preschool because uh, because. Uh, the current preschool is a little bit far and we have some problems uh, with the distance but Mm -hmm. uh, now we got the place in a very very close, actually the closest one which is like 200 metres away from us. So we decided to change her preschool. She started when she was 2 years old and now in uh, 20th of Mm -hmm. August she will be 3. So uh, my question is, uh, how many hours now she can be in the uh, in preschool? Because I heard from your father uh, that uh, when they are uh, so young, it's better not to be uh, like eight hours in preschool. It's better to be like a half time. So she was half time. Only those days we uh, we had to put her there. Just a few days. That. She would stay. Uh, she was staying there for uh, until four o'clock. But other than otherwise, uh, she comes home on like twelve thirty. Uh, now she's going to be three years old, and mm-hmm. I want to know how can be can we put her in the uh, preschool a little bit longer, or we should continue with half time.
1: Well, well I think for each family, the questions that come up are how do you make it work in your family. So if you have no other choice than to put her there full time. It might not be ideal, but I don't think it's that harmful if the other situations or other aspects of the family make that more appropriate. So tell me a bit about what makes you want to keep her there all day.
2: Uh, actually, it's about uh, it's about my time schedule uh, mm-hmm. because um, here uh, we live in Sweden. And in Sweden, if uh, parents are working or studying, depends on their schedule the children have the right to be in the, in preschool mm-hmm. so for example if i work from 12 to 5 uh, pm the child has the right to be 12 from 5 something like that mm-hmm. if i work half time or or full time it depends on my shift so i want to know um that's why i'm asking uh, because i can um we can we can live with uh, less money uh, but if it's better for our child, so we do that. And so I can uh, also work like half time. But sometimes the schedule is different. For example, some days is from 8 to 1 o'clock or some days is from 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock, something like that. I also have another question regarding to this. Is it okay for the child uh, one day go in the morning time, another day go after lunch?
1: Well, with you know, in general, consistency is is good, especially when you're changing the school. It likely will be better to keep it keep it consistent. Um, so, probably better to keep it as consistent as possible for your child to to know what to expect. Now, tell me a bit about your child. What is she like? Is she was it easy for her to go to preschool to begin with? What was that transition like for her?
0: Actually, it
2: was very easy for her. She's the only child, uh-huh. and. Uh... She, uh, we didn't expect that she liked preschool that much. <laughs> she almost <laughs> forgot about us and just uh, left us and went to, to play with the teacher and see other kids. And she loves the school. And uh, honestly, the school also is very good. Mm-hmm. So, Okay. Yeah, she is very okay.
1: Okay. And although you're saying she's leaving that school to come to a new school.
2: Yes, it is very close. Close,
1: So we'll have to see how that transition is for her. Um, If she had such a good transition there, likely she's not going to have such a hard time. Change can be tough for a lot of kids, but if she transitioned to preschool easier, then likely change won't be as hard for her. So let's see how she does there. I would say initially not to take her to full time um, when you go to a new preschool. So when she's transitioning, I would keep it the same as much as you can uh, because of that. So I wouldn't go to switching to full day, um, you know, if you can.
0: Okay.
2: Okay. Uh, we already started to talk about her because when we go out shopping from the supermarket, it's right next to the supermarket, mm-hmm. uh, preschool. And uh, she she looks at the kids are playing in the yard and... We always tell her that this is going to be your new uh, kindergarten or something. And she is very curious and she wants to go and talk to the children, something like that. Uh, but uh, as you say, how long should we keep this consistent? I mean,
1: you know, I know you're looking for like a very clear guideline of this is the exact amount of time. I don't think there is something like that to say that after 1 month you can transition to longer if that seems to make sense i would see how it's going for her see how she's feeling it seems like she's more her disposition is more um uh secure or not a very difficult temperament and like she in general is she okay with change or with things being different
2: um i i we try to keep the routine sure. for her but um for example, we, when we bought a uh, new car, uh, she first didn't want to get in the new car. Mm-hmm. She okay. wants to be in the old car. So uh, she uh, she was a little bit uh, like uh, upset about it and she mm-hmm. wanted to be in the first car. So it's something like that. But after like two times, then uh, she got used to it. Okay. And she followed with the second car also.
1: Well, yeah. So I mean, so yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
2: And she's very social.
1: Right. So it seems like it's
2: the the kids really made her so curious. Blessed.
1: Yeah. The kids make, and that's okay. good. She seems to like being around kids her age and playing, and that's good. So she will be okay. And I think eventually switching or transitioning to a longer day would be okay, especially as she gets closer to three. So I, I don't think it's exactly, like I said, there's a set timeline. She has to do this. I would say when she's changing, I wouldn't go to a new school and longer hours all at once. But change the new school, at least let's say, since if you're looking for a time, at least a month or two, and then she'll get closer to three as well, if that works for you. Because again, a lot of these things, parents want to know what's the exact right thing. When do you stop this? When should you start this? And there are some guidelines at times, but what's also very important is to look family to family to see what your unique circumstances are. Because let's say you keep it at four or five hours a day But it creates a very big burden on you and on your family that might hurt you and her even more than if it's better to stay four hours versus eight hours so you have to also look at your own situation to make the determination of what's the best thing to do my sense from what you're saying is the transition there could be some even if she likes the new kids or you know was curious it might still take her a little bit of time so i'd give her some time to adjust to that and then you can see how extending goes and even with that see how that goes if you try seven eight hours and it's much too long or she seems to be really upset or gets affected by it you can go back so I, I want you to recognize that some of what you'll be doing is looking at her and your family to see what's working and not working not that if i told you eight hours is good it doesn't matter if she's unhappy you keep her there eight hours mm-hmm.
2: and how about uh, switching the shift I mean, uh, one day she goes in the morning and
1: um, another day she goes in the afternoon. Well, it could be okay. The things that come to my mind is also, will the kids she's with be different? And so that can also affect how comfortable she feels. If there's kids that go in the morning and kids in the afternoon and she switches, it's not the worst. You could like that if she wants to play with different kids, but the consistency is probably better. So she creates relationships, plays with them certain ways. So, if you can keep that consistent, I would recommend it. What makes you want to change the shifts?
2: Well, it's actually since we moved to a smaller city, uh, the job opportunities are very. <laughs> is not so high here, mm-hmm. so I needed to um, just adapt myself to what kind of jobs are available here. Okay. So those jobs like um, I can be uh, I can work as substitute uh, preschool teacher also. Uh, even every day because uh, the lack of uh, staff, because of lack of staff. So one job is now I'm in um, training and learning is uh, preschool, um, not teacher, but uh, uh, like preschool babysitters, something like that. Okay. And another thing that I'm also going to uh, take some courses and work at the same time for, as a summer job to just uh, experience it and also get some money is uh, work in uh, old people house. Okay. So these two are the current um, jobs that I want to try. And actually, I must say, they are nowadays they are the only jobs that I can choose. Mm-hmm. So um, if I choose uh, to stay in uh, preschool, so it's much easier for me to uh, put the time like exactly like when my child goes to school. If I want to uh, work in old people's house, that's a different... Story. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe some days I need to go at work from one to six or seven, or maybe some days I need to like the summer schedule that I al- already have, like from eight to two o'clock. So it can be different mm-hmm. uh, day to day uh, or something like that. I see. So that's what I wanted to know because if I because the most important thing is uh, what is good for my child. And of course, we want to, ha- uh, we need some more money, but the priority number one is the child. Yes. So that's why I'm considering sure. and asking you.
1: Sure. I, and like I said, it's uh, it's going to be a balancing act because one thing that comes to my mind when you said like one to seven, um, I, it, you know, likely isn't good for you to not be there when she wants to go to sleep. So I, I don't know what her bedtime is, but I would be mindful of, of that if you can make sure you're not uh, away during that time that's very important if you find a schedule let's say if it's one to six and she sleeps at let's say eight um i think what's important is to keep it consistent more than to say that nine to one or whatever nine to two is better Mm -hmm. than one to six so the the type of um the hours i don't think is as important as keeping it consistent as much as you can Mm-hmm. So that's something I would want you to keep in mind.
2: Okay, okay. Thank you so much. And uh, can I ask another question?
1: Of course, go ask. ahead.
2: Um, here, uh, if someone wants to work in kindergarten or preschool, they need to uh, they need to study and for one and a half year or two years or three years, something like that, depends on which level they want to be. Mm-hmm. But if you want to work as a substitute teacher, You don't need to uh, study, just some courses you take while you are working there, and then you can do that. So, uh, and I was wondering if this can be tough because, for example, uh, some days there are only one educated one and the rest are substitutes. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, I saw uh, some kids with different behaviors or strange behaviors. Uh, well, I only have the knowledge for my kid, uh, and also I was listening to your father's CDs, but not all the ages that I was dealing with. Um, so I want to know if I'm going to uh, continue uh, with uh, preschools, uh, should I, do you think uh, I myself, they don't need, they don't ask me, but should I myself start studying at least about some psychology about children in this uh, from like age? One to because they come from age one, no one comes from uh, being a baby. Mm -hmm. But from one to like three years, four years, five years, should I do it? Or um, what do
1: you uh, suggest? Uh, Certainly, I think, you know, here often it might be the same there you're saying, depending on substitute or not, but you usually have to study some kind of child development or developmental psychology if you're going to be teaching uh, in a preschool or some kind of school. So I think that, of course, that'd be good. even for your daughter as well, the more you understand, the better, even though not everything you learn will apply to her if you're learning about different types of issues or disorders. But I think why not do that? And if you decide, I know you're saying you're deciding between some different careers from working with, you know, an older people's home or working with children, then why not go more into educating yourself in that area to be more solid and even if you can make it where you could then be a teacher, not just the substitute or assistant, it'd probably be good for you to give that stability to yourself. So I think it looks important for you to first pick a career area and then go further into establishing yourself in that area. But to me, I think there it's yeah. a, it's a good idea to study that regardless, even just for having a child yourself, but especially if you're gonna be teaching with children, certainly and, and also keeping in mind that you're not gonna always know or understand every child even if you do study uh, the child psychology but it can definitely help you in being more prepared and feeling more comfortable and confident when you're doing so
2: okay oh uh, yes now i'm uh, just in uh, like uh, experiencing these two different mm-hmm. see which one suits me better uh, and hopefully i will choose one even even i was thinking if i want to uh, work in lg no, older people have. Um, I'm going to talk to uh, the boss and say that uh, I can only come at this center at certain time. Mm-hmm. Uh, time. So uh, thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. My thank pleasure. You. Very helpful.
1: Oh, thank it's you. very nice talking to you. And yeah, as I said, I think, you know, finding whichever career and then making sure you you get to a more solid place within that will be really important because then you'll feel more stable and what you can do will be more stable. But it was very nice talking to you. Wish you all the best.
2: Oh, the same. Thank you. Have a all nice day. Right. Thank
1: you. Take care. Bye bye. Okay, let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air.
3: Uh, hello doctor
1: hi thanks for it's a calling
3: pleasure to uh talk with talk with you
1: my pleasure go ahead um i'm
3: a, a 19, 29 year old um girl, um, girl mm-hmm. and uh, i wanted to discuss with you about uh, my problem with um making close friendship with others and um uh, that like the uh this yeah, I'm scared of it. Like, mm-hmm. it has been an issue for me recently, actually.
1: Okay. So, a hard time making close friendships. You're 29 years old. and uh, You said this, you know, you said fear, and that's, you know, we talk about anxiety or fear. And with friendships and things, people can feel like, well, why would we be afraid of something like that uh, about um, being close? But But it's a very common thing that people have. We have anxiety. We care a lot about what people think, what they feel about us. And so we have this desire, all of us, to be close to one another, to human um, need, but we can also have a fear of getting hurt as well. So we're trying to balance those things. By the way, I'm not sure if you have the radio on. I hear a little feedback or echo in the background.
3: Uh, No, actually, I don't have the radio.
1: Uh, Maybe it's or if you're on speakerphone.
3: No. No. Okay. Uh, I'm talking. No. Okay. Sorry for
1: that. N- that's picture. okay. My It's just a technical thing. Wanted to see if there's anything we can do. Okay. So tell me a bit about what what you know is going on for you as far as this issue. Has it changed in any way recently, or has it always been the same? Tell me a bit more about it.
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, like um, before my marriage, um, I was also not good with having deeply like friendships. I used to have a lot of friends, but. I always uh, I was not so open to people to like show my feelings and um before my marriage I I can say that I had one or two very close friends but it became worse uh when I like met my um husband like my husband mm-hmm. and then I was more cautious about uh being open to other people I have a very good relationship with my husband I can say that he is my best friend but um I have become very, very cautious about other people. I can talk with them easily, like, but um, I think that I, um, unconsciously, I I behave in a way that I don't see them like often. So I see many people like during the week, but uh, somehow I don't make that relationship deeper. So I just keep it in a way that it's like, uh, without any feeling behind it, something mm. like that, I can okay, I can say,
1: sure now, but you're saying with your husband, you feel like you are very close and you've let yourself get emotionally yeah, very close, yeah.
3: yes, yes, actually, um, like after my marriage, uh I switched from my friend like then I was single to my husband, actually, oh. hmm. and um I'm also his her his like best friend, like the I say everything to him, and he talks with me, and we have a very close relation.
1: Okay, so uh, in a lot of ways, that sounds good. That you're, you know, so close. You're each other's best friends, and you can share everything with one another. The uh, immediate concern that jumps out to me, and when you say it that way, though, is that sometimes what we do in our romantic relationships is we expect too much from our partner and too much from the relationship. So they become, you know, kind of the way we hear in romantic songs or poetry. They become your everything, but that's not necessarily good because it can put too much of an expectation on the relationship. And so although we want to be very close and, and be best friends with our partner, we still need to have other people in our life or else it tends to actually have a negative effect on the relationship over time and on how we're doing because we're limited in the experiences that we have. Um, how long have you been married?
3: Um. Totally, I know my husband for five years, mm-hmm. uh, almost five years, but uh, we have been together for four years. Okay. Like, means I got married, yeah. Been married
1: for four years, uh, and just, yes, okay.
3: Yes, I just, sorry for interrupting no. you, I just also wanted to say one thing. Actually, um, I'm not totally dependent, on my not a husband, because I have my own activities that I spend, like, with, with others uh like i'm i'm not a, like some person that who stays at home and like spend all of my uh, like free time with like common friends only my husband but uh but the point is that uh, that activities are too much i can say <laughs> that uh it is not like it specific group or specific people it is divided between like many people
1: okay so now you know you're calling me which means Either you feel not good, or you're wondering or worrying. What if this is not good? So, is it something that you want to have closer friends, or is it that you're worried? What if I'm doing something wrong, and you just want to make sure it's okay?
3: Actually, I'm not feeling good. I okay. can say that um, I'm doing this to like make friendship, but at the same time, I'm behaving in a way that uh, I'm not making deep relations with others.
1: Uh-huh. So yeah, you, it seems like you recognize. You see people. You do things, but you are putting the brakes on getting close. Like you don't let it get too close, and it seems like you're either not sure why or you don't know how to change it, or or maybe both. So, what comes to your mind as to why you might be preventing the relationships from getting closer?
3: Um, I think it's because I, um, I may like uh, about. I don't know. Maybe it's a mistake, but about the expectations that they have from me, like, Mm -hmm. uh, like uh, saying, like uh, being too close, and saying like my private life, like things, and uh, or I don't know, uh, judging my, um, judging me. Actually, I think it is because of the judgment. Okay. Or, and as long as I, if I'm not sure about that person, I, I'm very like I try to be. too far from that person and I think it's because of the judgment and the fear that I may get hurt in Mm -hmm. that relation.
1: Mm -hmm. So what it sounds like is you're trying to protect yourself but by protecting yourself you're preventing yourself from getting close which you want and that's what I meant is that we have this desire to be close we want to be close whether we're talking about in a romantic or friendship Um, but we also could be afraid of getting hurt and we're always balancing that and for some people Uh, Their fear of getting hurt, or the expectation that they might get hurt is even stronger, and so they're more afraid. So, looking at your own life, when you think about, let's say, with your parents and your relationships there, what do you remember about those relationships? Did they feel good and loving and safe, or did they feel more unsafe, or was there any kind of significant trauma in those relationships?
3: Um, actually with my parents, especially my mom, I had a lot of like problems. And uh, like, uh, he was so, contr- sorry, she was so controlling mm-hmm. me uh, when I was like, even, um, I don't know, in my early 20s. And um, then I like, uh, when I was financially independent and also got married, I had this indep- independency. So I tried to also ignore her. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, so, actually, if I like, even when I moved from like um, immigrated to another country uh, like I'm so I'm not so eager to talk to my mom like every mm-hmm. two weeks mm-hmm. I can say.
1: Yeah so we can see that that relationship which is maybe the closest one you had as a child and for most of your life until your marriage it was a relationship that was hurting you more than it was helping you or making you feel good so you're saying now that if you didn't need her, you didn't want to be close to her, you'd prefer to have space and distance because the feeling of being in a relationship with her takes away rather than it gives. So for some people, they say, I'm stressed out, let's say, I wanna talk to a friend or spend time with my friends because that'll make me feel better. Some people, they're stressed out, they say, I can't see my friends because that gives me more stress or I can't see people because it's gonna make things worse. And so the way you're describing your relationship with her it was more. It feels like a burden than something that you were wanting or enjoying in that that relationship with your mother.
3: Yes, by default, it is like that. Like maybe I enjoy like, right now. I enjoy while I'm talking with her, but uh, before or after that, it's like I don't want to do this. Like hmm. I don't hmm. want to talk to her. But like if I'm forced, I I call her. It's
1: yeah well and so we can see that until until it's like necessary or there's no way around it you try to avoid that connection so you mentioned she was controlling but something you said about friends was the fear of judgment was there a usually it goes along with controlling but was there a judgmentalness that she had as well
3: yes my about my behavior in front of others uh, she was very like very like after any ceremony or any event, I was like judged by her that, why did you do that or don't
1: do that again? So yeah, here we can see that 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 specifically can lead, it's almost like a double double effect. One is the relationship itself doesn't feel good when you get, uh, she talks to you that way or you feel like you're being scrutinized or judged. But on top of that, she makes you feel more anxious about being around other people and what's the right way and good way of being so it makes you more afraid of their judgments even if you think she's being wrong which it seems like you think you you think that especially now but when it was happening and still it's going to have this effect that the people out there are judging or are looking negatively at you so it's safer to be away from them but that's where you are now where you want to be close but there might be an anxiety of when you are then out there, you are exposed to their judgments or exposed to them um, seeing you in a certain way that doesn't feel good, so it's safer to be away. It seems like that's how you've chosen to deal with that aspect, at least now, is avoiding the possible judgment of people or their expectations. Yes. Okay.
3: And, uh, I really don't know like, how can I make my situation better, because by myself, like. I take one step, I but I take 10 steps back.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, changing something that feels very strong within us is very hard, especially when it's been there since childhood and, and into our early adulthood. So you, you right now talking to me can get that you want to get closer to people, but then when you're in the situation, it feels unsafe and you, you turn around. So it's like... Um, it feels like you're getting to a cliff so you don't want to go any further even though you know it's not a cliff. And so part of it is we can definitely talk some more and I think not only just our talking but going to therapy and if you haven't already, looking at this relationship with your mother and other things can help. But the other part of it is that no matter how much you talk about it or think about it, that's not going to fix the issue. A big part of it's going to be you have to take risks getting closer to people and allowing to see what happens because we can get hurt by friends and by people. That's part of the risk we take in any relationship as we can get hurt, but we hopefully will accept that it's worth that risk and go forward anyway. So some of what you're going to have to do is put a little pressure on yourself to take steps and figuring out first what those steps are and then taking those steps to get closer to people around you and then seeing what happens. You probably will feel nervous, you might want to make excuses, you might do lots of the things that you usually do to avoid them, but to push yourself to overcome that. It's like you're learning a new way of uh, you know, walking or a new exercise. At the beginning, it's gonna feel weird and feel wrong, but if you think it's worth it, hopefully you'll push through that uncomfortable feeling for something that you think has value. Yes. Um...
3: I Can you just add one more thing? Sure. What the, my biggest fear is that people think, may think that I'm a pushy person, that I want to like uh, force myself mm. on them. And because like I'm begging for a friendship, it makes me like uh, this is also the biggest, another biggest <laughs> thing hmm. that I have
1: okay you know what's interesting is this is something we can look at you know we're almost at a commercial break and so we'll go and i want to continue the conversation afterwards but what the first thing that came to my mind and it's it's relevant i don't know if you listened to the beginning of the show when i mentioned we have a shadow sometimes we see something in our parents and because we dislike it so much we want to become almost the opposite of that so because of what you've just shared about your mother is it possible that Because she was more pushy in her relationship with you. You want to be the opposite of that. You never want to be that way. And so even you're afraid of asking for something you want that it's going to come off as being pushy or it's going to come off that you're asking for too much. So there does seem to be something there about your own needs, uh, feeling like they're something you have to hide or are not comfortable sharing, at least not with everyone. So there's something that could be there. Anything about that. Can you connect to what I was saying right now, or does it not uh, connect to what you feel like is your story?
3: Actually, I think yes. Okay. But, um...
1: So how about this? Think about that. We're going to go to a commercial break right now. Sorry. So I want you to think about that, and then after the break, we'll we'll follow up with that and, and keep going with the discussion. Okay? Sure.
4: Thank okay.
1: You. All right. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're with the caller before the break. Let's go back to her now. Caller, are you still there? Hello? Hello? Hi, are you still there?
3: Hi. Uh, okay. Doctor, do you hear my voice? Yes,
1: I do. Yeah, we weren't getting it for oh, a few sorry. seconds. No, no, it's okay. Uh, you know, even the way that's interesting, that's happened twice now that I think you apologize for something that wasn't your fault. Uh, about the technical issues Uh, and so this might even be related to what we were saying about um, your own needs or feelings being okay or important
3: I guess actually this (laughs) is like something that um, or I like say thank you a lot Mm
4: -hmm.
3: and sometimes like even uh, to the people like um, in the country that I live and uh, like uh, then I say thank you a lot to them they say okay like we didn't do something uh, <laughs> it's, it's strange to them and even to my like uh iranians that i say thanks a lot and they say oh this is too much
1: mm-hmm.
3: or again apologizing a lot and yeah sometimes okay you will say less but by default it comes
1: sure well so you see it's like you're, you're saying by default it's so uh, natural for you and so there is a sense of of people pleasing there of making sure others are okay that they feel uh good about you or that they don't seem like you're um you know if you you're saying thank you because you're saying i didn't expect you to do anything or i'm acknowledging what you did that's what i meant it could be relevant to what we were talking about and so before the break we uh mentioned how your mother being the way that she was it's almost like you want to be the opposite of that in some ways so if she was demanding or asking too much of you you almost want to ask nothing of of other people. Also, if you're in a relationship like that, you learn to not ask much because you don't have that space. Um, but as I was, I was thinking about, I also want to make sure we look at other aspects of things too. Tell me a bit about your father and your relationship with him.
3: Um, I can say that my father wasn't a controlling person at all. Uh-huh. Um, I think he was mostly affected by my mother's reaction. So whenever She was angry, like my father also defended her and uh, it was like um, cause and effect. So Mm -hmm. whenever she was angry, he was also like angry also, but most of the time, I don't remember that um, he was too strict with me.
1: Okay, were you you close with him?
3: Um, No, actually, I was close, I can say with my mother.
1: Okay. And do you remember, as a child, wanting to be closer with him?
3: No, I didn't want to close be, be close with, her, with him, actually. Um, he was also, like, had this uh, anger that uh, whenever um, something was, like, forcing him, he, he became angry so much. So I was also, like, in order to
1: make
3: things like smoother I also avoided
1: him mm-hmm. I can say Well and, and, and that way you avoided him but you had to avoid yourself too in the sense that if you were upset or feeling something you likely would not be comfortable sharing it with him or around him Yes Yeah so we can see that in, in your family of origin in your home you learned that it's first of all, it doesn't feel so comfortable to be close to people because you're saying even you weren't that close to your father, but there wasn't that desire, almost like the way you describe it, like you were afraid of him or afraid to get too close or that it wouldn't feel good to be close, which is how you're describing being friends with uh, people now. And with your mother, it was too close in a way that didn't feel good. And so we can understand that your expectation of relationships isn't a very positive one.
3: Yes, actually, like, when close, uh, when I think of a close relationship, always uh, this hurt, hurting and, mm. like, getting hurt um, comes to my mind. And, um, yes, like, for me, it's a miracle that I become very close to someone uh, other than my, like, current family.
1: huh. Well, well, speaking of what might sound like a miracle, the way you described your relationship with your husband was that you feel very close, very comfortable. So how do you think that's been so different, the, the experience you have with him, based on what we're talking about, how relationships can feel for you. Tell me about how you met him and and what you think makes that relationship so different.
3: I think um, I, I met him through the hobby that um, I started and continued uh, in spite of my mom's uh, objection. Okay. Like, I met him through hiking uh, through a hiking group and um
1: and you're saying your your mother was against like, your mother was against hiking
3: yeah, like um yes because like in iran iran uh, society and like i like I was living in another city uh, and so she was like too worried about me to go out with mm-hmm. other people, so she was mostly saying that to stay at the dorm and study something like that so um yeah okay and like she he was totally opposite of my parents like he didn't um control me or put boundaries uh to activities that i was doing and up to now he was he's okay with everything like he never said told me that okay you shouldn't do this he always said okay go and try mm-hmm. like um with him i i have like with him i have uh, tried like the activities that i really like since my like since I was a teenager, so and um, even I think that I'm just also having a good, having a good youth, childhood. Also, like I'm experiencing everything right now. I can say like hmm. anything that I didn't have during my childhood or when I was a teenager or in my early twenties.
4: So.
3: I see. So uh, we
1: we can see that's how that's in, that's yeah, how important it is that he makes you feel like you have the space to to. To be yourself, to feel what you feel, to do what you want to do. Uh, that's something you're saying is newer for you. You don't tend to expect that, but he does make you feel that way.
3: Yes, that's it. exactly that's it. Like because of that I'm I'm so okay with
1: him. Okay. And and that's very good. That I'm glad he gives you that and that's what we want in a relationship for the person to feel for both people to feel they can be themselves and be comfortable and, and also even take risks, try new things. You don't always even know if you're going to like something, but having that space to try and even seeing different parts of yourself. Um, is your feeling that he's the only one out there this way and you're afraid to meet new people? Because it does seem like there's, I doubt you'll say that that's the truth, that he's the only one You know, as romantic as you want to be that has that personality. Um, but there almost is this sense that you're like, well, I found a place where I can be safe why should i risk it in other places where maybe it won't be safe i can just this could maybe be enough for me but then you get in touch with this part of you that wants more wants to have friends and other connections and so it becomes uh, you get stuck in the middle but is the feeling there that you're worried that there aren't people like him out there that will you can have a relationship that feels comfortable uh actually i felt like um i can say
3: maybe before that i thought no there's no one but uh, recently I found someone um, like a, I found a very good friend, very like uh, out of sudden and then uh, I felt that okay, there's opportunity like uh, she made me feel that uh, I should be more help help hopeful for this because of that mm-hmm. now I had this concern more than ever.
1: okay, you're saying you uh, have that concern? you have that concern more now or are you saying she's made it so it's less?
3: No, she has made it more because um, I met her in another country and then I had a very, I felt that uh, friendship that I was like looking for for a long Mm -hmm, time. mm -hmm. And then I came back to my home country. I thought that, well, if there's like this kind of people more, why should I stay like this in my normal life?
1: Oh, so she's made you more hopeful, right? So not more concerned, more hopeful. Good. Okay. I'm glad that you had that um, experience with her and there's going to be others like her. We can understand that your expectation based on what you experienced as a child with your parents was that uh, although we might want relationships, there's something that hurt us. And so I think that's why, you know, you found your husband and feel so comfortable with him that you've in some way latched on to him being like the everything, but I'm glad you're realizing that that's not good. You want more and you need more. And as I said, over time, especially it can Um, have a negative impact on the relationship because it's almost like you drain each other because you need to be everything for each other all the time so you're going to need other friendships and we have to be willing to risk as I was saying getting hurt and also be willing to risk that what we expect might not be the reality that although we think people are going to be like our mom and dad and what we experienced growing up that's not going to be everyone that was them and it's not the whole world just like There are people like your husband and this other person you met recently out there. So as I mentioned, what you're going to have to do is put yourself in that uncomfortable space of getting closer with people not knowing. And I also want you to be ready that when we say people make you feel comfortable, it doesn't mean that they're never going to let you down or hurt you, you know, in some ways. That's part of any relationship is sometimes we get hurt. But if we have this experience growing up, we often become oversensitive to getting hurt because we're trying to protect ourselves. So the first sign that someone maybe, oh, even makes a comment or a joke that might have some kind of judgment in it, you might go to this place of, okay, see now this person I can't trust, or this person's just like the rest of them, and you might go away. So I would recommend that you give people a little bit more of a chance. Yes, if they hurt you very in a big way, they don't need a second chance, but in general, giving people more of a chance because I would assume you're going to be more anxious when it comes to meeting new people and might get afraid if you see something that can make you feel hurt in some way.
3: Um, Okay, I want to also add one more thing. Um, For this purpose, should I increase the number like the? Quantity of activities that I have and spend like more time on the activities that I think there's a chance to find people and like talk
1: to them Well, yeah, you I mean that's one option I think you're looking to being open to meeting and you could do different things where you might meet people Kind of like how you met your husband through activity that often is in adulthood How we meet people or often through other friends we meet friends, but if you're saying there really isn't that many close friends you, you might not have that option. So sure, why not why not do that? But let me ask you, you and your husband, are there friends you spend time with together, like mutual friends, or are you spending time almost yes. only together?
3: Uh, no, no. We have, like, common friends. And okay. um, he's more eager to spend more time with them. But I myself also want to, like, uh, not spend all of our time on, like, the same people. I mm-hmm, want to expand mm-hmm. it, like... sure. Um, like not putting all the. Egg. I, I always tell him that let's not put all the eggs in one basket.
1: That yeah, that's a good. That's so. a. I think that's good, and also for it to be your your own experiences too. Now, since you're saying your husband and you are so close, how does he see this issue in you? What's his perspective on this? Um,
3: sometimes he gets annoyed that uh, I'm not spending more time with other people like uh for example uh i don't want to spend more time with the common friends that we have mm-hmm. or um uh, yes like um he wants like he demands more uh, deeper relations with others mm-hmm. like quantity is not important to him he wants like a good quality friend a good quality uh friendship
1: uh huh. And is it that he wants you and him to spend time with those friends, or he wants to have time with them himself?
3: Like, uh, actually, uh, he he always said that it's he like also need to be with him with them more. Okay. But uh, he's also okay that if I can't go with them, he, he go he goes by himself. Okay. But I think um, he's more happy than I go with him like this.
1: Sure. Well, so sometimes, you know, having both is going to be good. Um, but, you know, the way you said he can get tired of it or he wants certain things, that's my concern is that over time it's going to be, it's going to take something out of your relationship if, if there's less, uh, if there's really no one that you feel very close with outside of it, it's not going to be good for you. So he is your comfort and your safety, and it's good to have that. But we want to have that as a safety to then go explore, just like a child goes to the the mom when they have a secure attachment and then goes and plays you have him and so i hope you'll take the risk knowing you have him that you can get close to other people i think unfortunately your relationships with your mom and your dad and then your mom also making so many comments about people's judgments and you shouldn't have done this you shouldn't have done that makes you also afraid of people's judgments and because of how they both were the feeling you gave me about your father of Having a bit of fear that you didn't want to get close to him also leads to a a people-pleasing mentality that we touched on earlier. And so because of that, when you think of relationships in an emotional way, one of the things that comes up for you is that it's going to be something that hurts me or takes away. But I think you're recognizing there's the possibility for something else. So at every step, you're probably going to feel anxious to get closer with someone. But I hope you'll keep taking those risks you can think about your husband that look how good it feels that I allowed myself to get close to him. And it's not going it to be to the same degree, of course, with the friendship, but it could still be very nice and close. And so I hope you'll take those risks in that direction to try to to get closer uh, to new people through activities can be great because you already have that mutual interest, but to keep taking those risks to get closer to people. And I say risks because it's going to feel anxious for you, but you'll be okay, even if things don't work out.
3: Okay. Um, regarding this kind of friendship, like, should I like make more common friends? or um, I also have this problem that how can I have a balance between having a common friend or a friend that are my own and mm-hmm. how much time should I spend with them?
1: Because, sure.
3: While I need them, my husband, is for
1: example. Mm-hmm. And so even in the way you're asking that, you know, I can feel this anxiety that comes up of like, well, even if I have friends, how do I balance it and it's going to be too much. And, and all these things make you more afraid to even try to make it work. And the truth is there's no answer. I can't tell you spend 83 minutes with your friends and this many minutes with your husband. It's something that you have to figure out and you and him have to figure out. You maybe are even afraid, what if I really want to spend time with my friends a lot and then my husband doesn't like that or he gets upset and it creates a problem. So you're avoiding a potential problem that you're imagining in your future. And so the reality is going to be that you and him will figure it out. There actually could be times where you're spending a lot of time with your friends and he misses you or he's spending time with his friends and you miss him. These things come up in marriages and you have to... To figure them out and navigate them not think okay if we come up with some rule it's never going to be an issue you know um partners in a relationship they differ in things like how much closeness they want some people like to have their alone time some people don't want to have alone time and so as a partnership you have to figure out how do we make these things work not we come up with some rule and forever it's going to be good we check in with each other we talk we communicate things are going to change and as they change we feel our feelings and communicate our feelings with one another, but I don't want you to feel like there's some exact amount. So you should feel comfortable going and trying to make your friends and, and let's see what happens. But I'm also hearing that you're not trusting yourself, that you're going to do the right thing or do it in the right way. So it's another thing that makes you feel it's just safer not to do anything. But don't worry, go forward, try to make friends and, and see what happens. It's something you're going to figure out, not something you can completely plan out and then go forward with that plan.
4: Thank you very
1: much. You're very welcome. Good luck luck to you. Nice talking to you.
4: Thank you. Sure. Take care.
1: All right. Let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air.
0: Um, Hi, am I on the air? Yes,
1: thanks for calling.
0: Okay, thank you very much for allocating some part of um, the time, the precious time on your radio, (laughs) and allowing me to ask the question that I have. Sure. I actually had a question about neurofeedback, and I wanted to get some opinion. Um, Mm -hmm. I heard that honestly on the radio, on Radio Hamra. It was mentioned that it's um, good for depression and, you know, autism and some other um, brain issues or something that is related to brain. And I wanted to ask um, if this is also working on um, people or rather kids with sensory sensitivity issues. Mm.
1: You know, I don't know about it being used for sensory sensitivity, for kids, often it's used for ADHD, and it can be helpful. Um, but specifically for sensory sensitivity, I I don't know if that's the case. I would have to look into it myself to see if specific research has been done on that.
0: Okay. Um, second question for mm-hmm. depression: um, Do you have to work with someone for um, them to actually diagnose that you you have it for sure, and then um, rather than skipping the you know um, ordinary treatment which is just treatment with pills you just skip that and go straight to it what are the um, downside of it and what is the side ethic versus just being on pills
1: you mean you mean going to neurofeedback for depression
0: yeah
1: um you know usually first line will be therapy not medication Um, now if you go to like let's say your primary care doctor or some doctors that don't do therapy they might provide medication if they feel that you're depressed but I would always recommend going to therapy first um, before medication
0: and would neurofeedback be um, kind of because I've read it somewhere that it's rather organic so you're not you know taking meds and you know Mm-hmm. rather than just traditionally working with medication that might have some side effects. Sure. Just going straight to neurofeedback. Would you suggest that? Is that I mean, recommended at all?
1: You know, Again, so you're talking to a psychologist who practices therapy, so my first recommendation is therapy. I don't think you have medication. And are you talking for a child or for who are we talking about here?
0: For adults.
1: An adult for, okay um,
0: depression for adults, yeah
1: sure and even for an adult I would recommend therapy first before um, before th- uh, medication and before neurofeedback
0: and once you're diagnosed and you have the um, depression for sure mm-hmm. that you would just um, suggest going through medicine then if it doesn't work then you choose the neurofeedback.
1: Well, no, I would recommend therapy can be, psychotherapy can be very helpful for depression. So I I would recommend going to therapy, not just to get the diagnosis, but actually get treatment for the depression, if that's in case, in fact, what's there. Okay.
0: Um, And another thing, I was just so excited because I I was thinking if there are just, um, working on your brain and to shut down some, you know, thoughts that you may have against something, how is it helpful or is it at all helpful um, for people with eating disorder or people who are overweight Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, kind of teaching your brain to, or you to have control over your brain to reach out to certain foods that are good for you and then kind of skip the bad food, is that at all something that is
1: happening with that? Well, you know, it, because it's helpful for things like ADHD, there is some, uh, it could have some impact on things like impulse control, but what I'll say is the way I hear you describing it, to, to me sounds like it might be you're, you're gonna expect too much out of it. Like it's some kind of a, a fix that's gonna just change the way you think about certain things. That it's almost like taking away these bad parts in your brain or bad thoughts. And that's not what I would think is going to be happening in any kind of treatment, including um, neurofeedback. So I think to me, I would recommend therapy still for dealing with the things that you've brought up. And in working with a therapist, they might make other recommendations. But these types of things, you know, there's no um, kind of a quick fix that's going to take away those thoughts or feelings or desires that you might be having or whoever it is that you're asking about is having.
0: Okay. And um, my last question, mm-hmm. um, is there any way going to neurofeedback be like harmful to you? Can they mess up your brain with that or um, like if you're not going to the right person or not?
1: Well, I mean, I, I can't say it, it's, it's like it can't harm you no matter what. Um, you know, the way even neurofeedback, I think because we think it's like neuro and brain, it, it's not like they're doing something to your brain. What they really do is like the feedback part is like, it's, it's, it's monitoring how you're processing things or how you're experiencing things with certain measurements and it helps you to figure out ways to, to let's say control some feelings or some, some ways that you're, um, let, let's take impulse control, for example, you'll, you'll be helped in that way. So it's not like they're going into your brain and doing something when we are talking about traditional neurofeedback. So I don't want you to get that idea. I think because we hear neuro, we think it's like something is being done to the brain itself. Now, of course, we can say anything we do affects our brain, but it's not in the sense that something, because they're hooking up things to your head, it's actually sending things into your brain. It's more that it's measuring things. So th- don't, uh, you know? there's not these like, huge side effects of something happening to your brain in that way that I would want you to be concerned about.
0: Okay, that answered my
1: question. Thank you very much. Okay, sure. Nice, talking to, nice, you, nice talking to you. Thank you, too. So maybe I'll add a few thoughts since we have a couple minutes before um, the commercial break. You know, often, and it's not exactly what she was saying, but we hear a lot this thought, and it's even relevant to the conversation about the shadow that I had earlier, that I have these bad parts of myself or these bad either feelings or thoughts, and I need to just get rid of them, you know, or people come to therapy and they say, I just got to get rid of this anxiety. And it's understandable because something like anxiety, when it becomes uh, significant, can cause a lot of distress and be very hurtful and harmful. So it makes sense that we think that we have to just get rid of that thing. Um, But what we tend to find is that what we're doing in therapy and most psychological work is finding ways to integrate the different parts of ourself into a whole sense of self. So you're not going to erase bad memories. You're going to learn how to feel different about those memories and incorporate them into your life and who you are, and to actually not make them have too much of an effect on yourself. So it doesn't mean they're going to go away, but they might be having too much weight or significance. And by working through that, you might be able to integrate into a more cohesive sense of, of who you are. Uh, So I get that a lot as a therapist that people come in and think how do we get rid of this part of myself or get rid of this part of my child because that's the bad part. But often the bad part is that we think of it in that way, that we think of ourselves or our psyches or someone else as just having these bad parts we have to get rid of. So even if your child is, let's say, biting their nails, it's understandable we want to stop that behavior, especially if they don't like it and it's causing some kind of distress for them. But it's not just we're getting rid of biting their nails. We want to understand that this likely means there's an anxiety, there's something else that's going on. So the um, biting the nails is more a symptom or some type of behavior, but the disease or what's going on, the pain is something underneath that. And something I've talked about before, I even read a book called The Quick Fix, um, I think it was last year sometime, I can't remember the exact date, but it's very often that people will be looking for a quick fix, which makes sense if you're not feeling good. Uh, we want to get rid of it more quickly and also more easily and, and all of those things that make it feel nicer for something to be a quick fix but almost always a quick fix is going to be too good to be true and not actually there and people are very ready to advertise quick fixes because they can sell if someone says you know that thing that's hard to do i can do it in an easy way cheaper way faster way well of course people are going to be intrigued and you often will get a lot of traction So I'm about to go to another commercial break, but I also want to make it clear I'm not saying that neurofeedback itself is a quick fix and not helpful. It actually can be helpful for many people. Just something, the theme that I felt coming up in in that conversation made me think of that. I wanted to add a few thoughts there. All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in this last segment, I wanted to talk about polarization and the effects it's having on us uh, and how we think and how it's actually making us stupider, less smart, and our ideas less good, um, and also leading to oversimplifications, which is part of that process. So when we talk about polarization, it's what this effect that people can move more and more to the extremes on different ideas or ideologies, and we've seen that happening in an exaggerated form lately because of things like social media where people can be exposed to different truths or different facts or different sets of facts but also to different opinions both in support of what they're saying and also making the other side look bad and because people prefer these things we prefer seeing things that confirm what we already believe and think, and that make us feel good about what we think and make us feel the other side is stupid. We're seeing a hyper-polarization where people are seeing things more and more from their point of view, their side, and having a very hard time understanding how anyone could think differently from them. We're also feeling more and more like we're parts of factions and different teams, that you're either on this side or that side, and it's very black and white and you have to support it Completely this way or completely that way. And so we're seeing definitely heightened polarization, and social media has definitely played a significant role in that and continues to do so. So now, when you think about, for example, what you uh, think about gun rights or abortion or whatever the issue is, people tend to fall into very um, polarized groups where you have to see it all one way or all the other way, and there's really no in between, even though many issues, most issues, tend to involve more of a a balance. And so we're all victims of this without even realizing it, because if you're on social media, the way the algorithms work is that it's going to try to put things that grabs your attention, that keeps your eyeballs on the screen, and because of that, it's not necessarily the best news or the most accurate news, but it's the news that they think will appeal to you the most, and it does follow certain themes. One is things that are more uh, going to create more of a reaction tend to get more attention. And so that means things that are more extreme get more attention and also things that bring up bigger feelings, things that are more intense. So things that bring up fear, fear of the things that are, let's say, part of the other side, whatever that means, or fear of what the other side is trying to do. And so right now, if you look at American politics, both sides think not just that the other side disagrees with them, that they are evil corrupt immoral stupid and might even have an agenda to hurt the country that they're actually wanting to hurt people and hurt americans and hurt the american people and the whole country as a whole that's what we tend to see now because of the news that people are being exposed to constantly pushing that narrative because it keeps people interested and so we have to ourselves be mindful of this because the the algorithms and the social media platforms, they're doing the thinking for us. So it's not that we're choosing our news so much that when you scroll, it's choosing it for you. And unfortunately, what it's going to choose is more controversial things, things that bring up more feelings, but also things that they think you're going to like, which means, again, things that make the other side look stupid and bad and things that make you and your side look smart and good and, and the only way to be. And so we have to challenge that ourselves by exposing ourselves to a variety of mindsets and viewpoints, even though we know it doesn't feel good. Uh, We've all had that feeling. I can feel it too. If I'm reading something and it, it already is conveying some point I agree with, it does feel nicer. It feels more comfortable. Or if it's saying the other side is wrong, it does feel good. So we have to understand that feeling, but not give in to that feeling, or at least not all the time. Sure, you're going to read things that agree with what you think, at least sometimes, but making sure it's not all of the time, which it is for most people most of the time. So we have to read things that we disagree with, a point of view you don't like, even news from a source that you don't like or has a different um, uh, ideology than the one that you hold. We, We need to do that in order to make sure we don't go down in these rabbit holes where we get so polarized where we're no longer seeing the truth. And so the oversimplification that I was talking about is coming through in this way that when you think of an idea, you just think it's all this or all that. Taxes are always bad. They should always be lower. Regulations, you should have more. You should have less. Whatever the topic is, we think the solution is so easy and it's just very simplified. So it's leaving to this oversimplification of how we look at issues and that's part of what's making us stupider. We don't think about things in a way that really looks at the nuance of what's going on. How do you solve a complex issue like homelessness in Los Angeles? Anyone that tells me it's so easy, I don't think really gets how challenging it is. Now, there is a so easy way of saying get everyone into housing, because that would literally make there be no homeless people. And I think that's actually a big part of the solution. But actually executing that is very complicated and does take a lot of Uh, A lot of different steps to figure out how to get there. Or when people talk about COVID and, well we should have done this, it would have been so easy. Or when it comes to the economy, it's so easy to fix inflation or fix this problem or that issue. It it, to me is, unfortunately, we're thinking we know more than we know, because when we hear people that keep agreeing with us, we think we have the truth. And so it's so easy. Look at uh, these 10 people that think that this is the easy solution to this problem. So of course it's right and the other people just don't know. So unfortunately, it's leading to us becoming stupider in the sense that we are oversimplifying complex ideas and taking away all the nuance, which is really the meat of what the issues are about. Another way that it's making us stupider is that we are not allowing our ideas and our thoughts to go to combat or to exercise themselves. So what do I mean by that? if you talk to someone that agrees with you, you likely won't refine your way of thinking and get to a better place. You'll probably end up at the same place in the sense that it's just like, okay, I think this, you think the same thing, yeah, we're so right. Aren't the other people so stupid? And then you you know, end the conversation, you kind of feel good uh, about that conversation with that person, but your ideas haven't gotten better. The ways our ideas get stronger is when they face some kind of challenge. And now it could mean you even change your mind if you're open. Most people are not open enough to even allow that to happen. But at least you are allowing your ideas to get challenged in the way that that makes anything stronger. Just like our muscles only get stronger if we have them go through some strain, through some challenges, through some pressure. Similarly, our ideas won't get any better until they face some type of challenge as well. Someone gives an argument against what you believe. And it makes you think, oh, yeah, well, what about that? How can I reconcile that with how I think? Do I already have an answer for it in my ideas that I have? Or do I need to accommodate this into how I think about things and it adds some nuance or a twist? Or it makes me refine what I'm thinking to add something that counteracts that? Whatever it might be, it's like allowing it to go through some kind of a... Um, exercise and the analogy i've used before is sometimes we just think about it ourselves the ideas and that can help but there's only so much you can do with that kind of practice so if you think of an athlete you're a basketball player and you just are shooting in the gym or you know working out and that has definitely an impact and you need to do that and then the next level would be talking with people who agree with you and that's just like having practice with your teammates so that can also help you improve you try different things yes you get more unified as a team so that does help you improve but really where you're going to improve the most is when you play an opponent when you play someone who is trying to stop you from scoring from doing things easily and really is going for it because your teammates you don't want to get injured you know for a variety of reasons again we always have to be careful how far we take an analogy but they're not going to test you the same way an opponent will and so then when you play with opponents that's when you really get better at whatever it is you're doing. So let's say it's basketball. You see that when players have had lots of um, experience playing against challenging uh, opponents, it actually helps them become better. Right now, uh, Luka Doncic is in the NBA and he started playing in Europe with adults when he was like, I think 15, something very young. And you could actually see the effect it likely has had in the development of his game that he played against challenging opponents from a very young age. And that experience actually has made him become tougher and stronger and better at, at playing. And so our ideas are the same way. If you just talk to people that agree with you, you might get some nuance from them that they see it a different way or add a different way of presenting something, but there's going to be little growth in how your ideas actually, uh, will grow or expand or get stronger because you're not facing the challenges. You're not having genuine debates, and I also want to add that part. A genuine debate means you express your ideas as strongly as you can, but you're also open and receptive to hearing the strong ideas of your opponent to take them in. And as much as it's probably unrealistic to think you won't care at all about winning the debate, you want to strive towards that ideal, that you're trying not to win against the person you're arguing with, but that your ideal is some kind of truth some kind of facing and understanding the reality. So we all have that feeling if you start a debate, you want to win. We tend to have that desire. But if we can move away from that to say, I want the winning for me is to know the truth. If I don't want to believe something that I can't even really defend or I don't think is true, I would hopefully want to believe something that I can understand as being true. Then we move more towards, I'm going to share my ideas as strongly as possible for myself and also for the other person, but I also want to hear what they have to say. Hopefully they present the ideas as strongly as possible so I can hear that too. And then my ideas and my ways of thinking will get better. And when I say my ideas get better, it doesn't mean they won't change. You might even change your mind if you genuinely have an open dialogue and debate with people where you allow yourself to hear what they're saying and really come to some conclusion. So making your ideas better doesn't mean you're better at defending your point. You can become that if you still feel like that's the right way to see the issue. But if you're closer to some truth, you might even change your mind as well and go to some other side. So we want to recognize that our tendency to feel comfortable with things extends very much into the realm of ideas and beliefs and thoughts as well that we tend to prefer as our default, things that make us feel comfortable, ideas that confirm what we already think, information that already confirms what we think and believe, uh, listening to people that expound or expand our thoughts in the ways that we already think about something, not someone who disagrees with us, all of those are things that are comforts. But as is the case with any any area of our life, we have to challenge that comfort that is going to be our default and put ourselves in some discomfort. Read articles that are from authors that you know disagree with your viewpoint and your mindset. Listen to people giving talks and also engage in conversations not I want to show you how stupid you are conversations but genuinely I want to learn from you. I think the best way to approach something like that is that I think I'm a reasonable person and an intelligent person and this is the conclusion I've come to But I also acknowledge that you're an intelligent person as well. And so if you've gone to another conclusion, I want to understand what you think and how you got there. And there's likely something for me to learn from you. Doesn't mean either of us will change our minds, but there's something we can learn from one another. But we have to first start from that space of respect as an individual and respect as someone intelligent, that I want to see what you think and what you know where we tend to go that the other side is stupid isn't coming from a place of strength it's actually that we're afraid that maybe we are wrong and we don't want to even entertain that because it could feel so scary to think that we could be wrong about some kind of belief especially if we identify strongly with that belief and this is why I talk about identity politics not about the way it's usually talked about but how strongly we identify with our politics that type of identity because if I am a Republican or a Democrat and now you prove to me that I'm not, that thing that I'm believing is wrong, that's as if my whole identity is falling apart. But if it's just a thing I think or believe at this time, it's a lot less scary for me if you challenge or question that in some way. So unfortunately, the hyperpolarization we're seeing is making us stupider, it's oversimplifying things, but it's up to us to put ourselves in the arena to challenge ourselves, to not just practice internally or practice with people on our team, but practice with people who see things differently from us to actually allow ourselves and our thoughts to, to grow and to not get weak over time. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Thank you to all the callers and Batis in the sh- studio here with me. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Dulaqui. Have a wonderful day.